0: In God's word together today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time of worship that we've already enjoyed today, Lord. The way that you've worked through song and through uh, prayer, through the reading of your word, and Lord, as we take this moment to open your word and understand what you would have us to believe, and to go from this place and do, Lord, I pray that you would work through me, your humble servant, uh, your clay vessel, that you might fill me up to overflowing, and that from Uh, that overflowing that these your people might benefit that they might drink deeply from the well of your word and grow in faith and knowledge of you pray that you would bless us now as we uh, study together in christ and i pray amen we're going to be in matthew chapter 5 again as we continue in our study in the beatitudes and we've been through seven or we're up to seven beatitudes now Uh, looking at the blessings of the kingdom of God and who those blessings come to. And so far, we've gone through uh, 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 four (coughs) unconditional, if you will, four unconditional Beatitudes, Beatitudes that come on those who cannot do anything. And we've seen three Beatitudes that are Uh, conditional they are they come on people who have a certain attitude or who do certain things so the merciful will receive mercy the pure in heart will see God and so now we come to another one of those conditional uh, those conditional blessings and this is the blessing of adoption so let's read together the seventh beatitude from Matthew chapter five verse nine Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So from this beatitude, we're going to look at two points today. We're going to see the formation of peace and the family of God. The formation of peace and the family of God. So to start with, let's consider the formation of peace. Now, this beatitude tells us that the blessings of God's kingdom come on those who make peace, so we have to ask, what does the Bible mean when it talks about peace? Now, I think that uh, every uh, there every beautifully naive child longs for peace, right? I remember when I was young, my dad and my mom they had this habit of taking us on these walks in the evening, right after the sun had set. And it was hopefully at least 90 degrees and not 103 degrees uh, in the summer they would take us on these walks through town and one night I remember it being very beautiful, very clear I was a young child and and my dad was, it was directing us as my dad likes to do directing us to look at the stars and uh, he we were looking at the stars and we're talking about the habit of wishing on a star and and my dad asked, well, if you could wish for anything, what would it be? And I, being, like I said, one of those naive children, said, I would wish for world peace, right? So world peace is one of those things that naive children and beauty pageant contestants wish for, right? <laughs> but why is it that a child, in his innocence or in her innocence, wishes for world peace? Why is it that we wish for the cessation of conflict. And I think, at least for a child, in a child's eyes, they as they mature and they get a little older, they begin to see the realities of this world and that childlike innocence recognizes that things aren't the way they should be, right? Things aren't the way they should be. Schools should not have to do active shooter drills. Cities should not have to have a homicide or a special victims unit. Countries shouldn't be on an endless arms race for weapons that could wipe out the whole of humanity a hundred times over. So when we, read the world, uh, when we read the word peace in Scripture, I think we're, we might be tempted to think of the word peace in, in the sense of a cessation of conflict. There are no more wars. There are no more conflicts of any kind. There's no more need for active shooter drills or anything like that. And I think certainly there is that interest in Scripture. There is that interest in the Bible and what we read from the Bible when it speaks of peace. But that's not all that the Bible means by peace. Rather, the Bible has a greater conflict in view. You see, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And the word shalom figures very importantly into the life of the Jewish people. It figures very importantly to it now. Nowadays, if you're if you're listening to two uh, Jewish people talk to one another, you'll notice that they greet each other and they say goodbye to each other by using the word shalom. Yet shalom is more than just a well wish to a friend. And shalom can't be easily translated into just the word peace. In reality, there are two words that help us get at the meaning of what the Jews mean by the word shalom. Those two words are rest and reconciliation. So first, shalom means that I wish you to have the rest of the Lord. I wish you to rest in the Lord. Rest is one of the ultimate goals behind God's plan of creation and God's plan of redemption. So, think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. God has just, in Genesis chapter 1, He's just created all that the world is. He's created the universe and everything in it by speaking it into existence and commanding it to be so. And at the end of creating everything that is in this world, we read that on the seventh day, God rested. Now, when we read that, it's a curious thing to read because we know that God is all-powerful. After all, if you read in Genesis chapter 1, He creates everything. Whales, stars, supernovas, black holes, everything, He creates it by speaking it into being. So why would an all-powerful God of the universe need to rest? Well... He didn't need to rest. God doesn't create the seventh day. He doesn't command rest for himself, but for his creation. You see, the last day, the seventh day, is for our good. And in saying on the seventh day he rested, this day of rest that he creates in, at the end of His creation is so that all of His creation would be t- pointed towards enjoyment in Him. All of His creation would be directed to resting in Him. And this is an important note that I want to point out about the concept of rest. It's something that we, even as Christians, get confused about. When I say rest, or when the Bible says rest... It is not talking about putting your pajamas on and sitting down and watching Netflix. That's not what is in view here. Because you'll notice that even in God's rest, Adam had work to do. He was to tend the garden. He was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He was to have dominion over all things. God gave, even in his rest, gave Adam something to do. But that rest was be, to be enjoyable, to be directed towards God. So in the Bible, when we rest, it, is, it means that we are directed towards God. We are to enjoy Him and to uh, benefit from His presence. And yet, we know that that rest was broken. That rest, in Genesis chapter 3, is broken into a thousand pieces. After the sin of Adam, God pronounces curses on him. And the first curse that God pronounces on Adam is that he will toil. He will no longer work, but he will toil. And no longer will the ground that God caused every good fruit to sprout from, no longer will that ground give up its, its fruit for the good of humanity, but instead there will, it will produce thorns and thistles that will torment and enslave him. But God was not done with his purpose of rest. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God rescued the nation of Israel and he led them out to Mount Sinai. And in his law that he gives to them on Mount Sinai, he establishes a command, the fourth commandment, that they should rest one day out of every seven. what they would come to call the Sabbath or what God would call the Sabbath. This, this rest was intended for their good. If you think about it, the Israelites had just spent 400 day, 400 years, I'm sorry, working their fingers to the bone seven days a week, 20, uh, seven days a week, 35 days, 30, 365 days a year. I'm getting my math all mixed up today. Uh, 365 days a year, they worked their fingers to the bone and not just working for their good, in fact, that was most of the time not what they were doing, but rather they were working to build idols for the kings of Egypt. And now the great God of the universe brings them out of that pagan situation, brings them out of slavery to Egypt, and he brings them to the mountain of God, and he gives them his law, and the first law is you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, there is no other king, no pharaoh, but me, And the second law is, you're not going to build any idols for me. And the fourth law is, you're going to rest. One day out of every seven, you're going to rest. But even still, Israel could not enjoy the rest of God. Men secretly collected manna, or they worked on the Sabbath. Religious leaders used the Sabbath laws instead of for the good of the people, they used those laws as an unreasonable burden on the people. They even tried to use the regulations that they had built up around the Sabbath as a means to trap Jesus. But Jesus understood the true meaning of the Sabbath, and so he answered back to these religious leaders in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now understand, in saying this, Jesus is claiming to be God. Because God is the one who created the Sabbath in the creation order. God is the one who gave the law of the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20. And now Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. So in saying that, he is claiming to be God himself. He is the one who ultimately brings rest in John chapter 16, verse 33. He tells his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have shalom. You may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world in Jesus Christ. We have peace, even with all the pain and sorrow and evil of this world. We have this peace because Jesus has brought rest to our souls. And because we have a hope, as we sang, uh, as the choir saying about that mansion in heaven, we have hope of an eternal rest. A day when we will rest from all our work and we will take delight. Our whole of our existence will be focused on the enjoyment of God in heaven. And we can rest in Jesus Christ because of the second aspect of this word shalom. Not only does this word mean rest, but it also means reconciliation. In order to have rest, in order to be freed from the toils of this world, in order to, to escape the curse of sin, we must be reconciled to God. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus has reconciled us to God through His death and resurrection. The first announcement of Jesus' birth promised that He would bring peace. Remember that famous line from the angels' song that they proclaim to the shepherds in the fields that were keeping watch over their flocks by night. In Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 14, it says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among men. The angels announced peace among men because Jesus had come to bring reconciliation between God and man. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what peace means in Scripture. We have rest from the toils of a corrupt and fallen world, and we have been reconciled to God. But Jesus, in this beatitude, he doesn't say, blessed are those who enjoy my peace. That's not what he says, right? He doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful. No, he says, blessed are those who make peace. As those who have, been, who have received the grace of God, not only are we called to mercy and purity... But we're called to seek peace with our fellow man. But how do we do this? We do this by pursuing rest and reconciliation in the world. We bring rest to our fellow man by seeking to live peaceably. Romans chapter 12 verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This means that we seek the common good. It means that we pursue justice and love mercy. It means that we are honest and helpful in our business. It means that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Miss April Till taught a beautiful Sunday school lesson this morning in which she was talking about Abigail and the situation where Abigail goes to King David in spite of her foolish husband, and he, she pursues peace with King David. And she does that by reconciling with him, by, by bringing gifts so that he would, he would assuage his, his wrath and, and be, bring peace to the land and not judge his husband, her husband because of his stupidity, quite literally. But in that, we see a picture of what it looks like to bring rest and reconciliation to other people. It means that we give up what we think is right for us. It means that we are not primarily pursuing our own rights, but the good of others. It means that we are concerned with the love of our neighbor and the good that we can bring to them. We also make peace by pursuing reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In Ephesians chapter four, verse three says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So now that we understand what it means to make peace, let's consider the second point, and that is the family of God. Jesus says that the peacemakers shall be called sons of God. So just like this word peace, the term sons of God has deep meaning in the Old Testament. For one, the Israelites themselves were called the sons of God. In fact, that's actually what it says in the passage that Miss Billy read uh, from Psalm 82. Um, The kings of Israel were also called the sons of God. So we see in here that the... To be a son of God was to be chosen by God. It was to be called out just as the Israelites were and the descendants of David were. So when Jesus is announced to be the son of God, it's not just an announcement of his deity. That's often how we read it. You know that he's saying that he is directly uh, the son of God and that is true. But it's also a claim to be the true Israelite. And the true son, uh, the true king of Israel. So when Jesus claims to be the son of God, he is saying that he is the true Israelite who is fully obedient to the law of God, who has done everything that God requires. And if you think about it, that's so. Jesus is the only one who has ever shown mercy to his enemy, he is the only one who has ever lived with a truly pure heart. And he is the only one who has brought peace between God and man. And he is the only one who is the true king over all of creation. So if Jesus is the only true son of God, he's the only one who has ever been fully obedient. He's the only one who could be accepted before God. How can we, too, be considered sons and daughters of God? We are sons and daughters of God by two means. First of all, John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons, and God, sons of God through faith. So, we are adopted sons and daughters of God by trusting in the true Son of God, Jesus Christ. But we aren't just declared to be children of God, we are also formed into children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Understand that there is a direct relationship between believing and becoming. There's a direct relationship between God declaring you through faith in His Son to be a child of God and through you becoming a child of God by the work of His Spirit. When you trust in Jesus Christ, God gives you His Spirit. And because of the presence of His Spirit in your life, you should start to act like a child of God. To be more precise, you you should start acting more and more like Jesus because the Holy Spirit will make you more like Jesus. So you do start to desire peace with your fellow man. You do start to make peace by pursuing the good of others and seeking reconciliation. So, friend, do you want peace with God in your life? Do you want the peace of God in your life? Do you want the rest that comes only through knowing Jesus Christ? Do you want to be reconciled to God and to man? Then come to Jesus Christ today. Brothers and sisters, if we have the spirit of Christ, then we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then we will seek peace we will, seek to, uh, we will seek the good of others and we will seek reconciliation with our fellow man. So may we leave this place and pursue peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of this beatitude and the call that we have to live as peacemakers in this world. Lord, we're thankful that you have made peace with us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that through faith in Him we have been reconciled to you. And Lord, as we leave this place. May we go out and make peace with other people. May we bring rest to others by the good that we do towards our fellow man. And may we bring reconciliation to a lost world by taking the gospel and preaching it and teaching it to those who do not believe. And may we bring reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we seek to live in peace and build up one another. Father, bless us now as we respond in faith. In Christ's name I pray, amen.